So why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles then to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're going to look at specifically verses 1 through 8, and I'm going to read that now. So why don't we follow along together and we pray God adds his blessing and his power to the reading of his word. Stephen's speech, the heading is of this section. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Then said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from this land in which you are now living. Yet, oh, sorry, he moved him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Let's pray before we dive into this text. Father, thank you for your word and that it has been preserved for us through these millennia and that it is here now before us, before our eyes, before our hearts. And God, may our minds be, be open as Dylan prayed to its instruction and its exhortation and its correction and all the things that we expect, Lord, that only you can do in a human heart. Uh, may we now be receptive and open to that. And I pray that you would guard my mouth from error, uh, guard my self from pride or from any presumption, Lord, and may Christ truly be exalted as we study your word. We pray this together for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is going to be a little bit of a mini-series in Acts chapter 7 because as Dustin pointed out, it's a long speech and what we would now kind of call a sermon. This is what Stephen is engaging in here. And I've called this series Lessons from History. It's a little bit benign, boring, you know, sterile. I get that. But truly, that's what's happening here. Stephen, and I'll explain a little bit more about the context, is preaching the history of Israel. If you don't know your Old Testament very well, I strongly suggest that you attend service and worship for the next four or five weeks or so. Because Stephen is going to help us really understand our Old Testament Bibles a lot better and how they relate to our faith today. And so we rarely get that opportunity in the New Testament to so dramatically focus on the old through the lens of the new. That's a real special gift to us. And so this morning, I would say the, the question that we're going to have answered for us is what does God expect from me? I don't know that that's exactly what Stephen had in mind in these seven, eight verses. But where his speech lands at the other end, we'll see, really has to do with this idea that there is a law, 
which is given by God, and it begs of us, what does God expect of me? So my question to you this morning is, and it's rhetorical, because I think we all know the answer to it, but I want to ask you, do you ever experience crushing insecurity about your position before God? Do you ever consider the actions and the events of your life and wonder what God expects of you in the midst of all of that in order to please him? Does that ever bug you? Is that a question that ever grinds on you? You may have been walking with Christ 30, 40, 50 years. You may have heard his name for the first time three weeks ago. And immediately when you start talking about and engaging with the idea of God, I think that's a question. And even as you live your life in faith, it's a question that keeps coming up. And I think it's a sensation that we often face. Crushing insecurity about our position before God. So our friend Stephen here, he, here's the context, he's been hauled before the court. He's a Christian, okay, but he grew up as a, Jew, as a Jewish person in the synagogue learning the Old Testament, which is why he knows it so well. He's been waiting tables at the church potluck, okay? That was his original job, if you look back in Acts chapter 6. He was one of the waiters who made sure that everybody got food equally in the church, then he starts preaching and also doing miracles and authenticating the message of Christ and the gospel. And this really bothers his kinsmen. The people from his same synagogue, they start saying, what is Stephen doing? And we need to question him. And they start actually telling lies about him and they start maliciously trying to get him caught. Okay, because the Jewish synagogue at that time was very powerful. As we saw, they had Jesus crucified, right? The synagogue was very powerful. The Jewish leaders were very powerful. And so they wanted to try Stephen and get him caught in his ministry so that they could, be, they could show him to have broken God's law and thus be killed. And so they're accusing him. And this is why this question is important. They're accusing him before God's law and saying, you have broken God's law. And the... And what happens with Stephen here answers the question, how does Stephen then compose his confidence and his conscience as he answers? When your conscience accuses you or when somebody else accuses you regarding your righteousness before God, how do you compose your confidence? How do you compose yourself and know that you are secure? Stephen is going to answer that. And he begins back in history, hence lessons from history. Now, it's amazing because we think, how is looking back into ancient Jewish history going to help me with my conscience when people are accusing me? I think Stephen answers this question. So what he does, he preaches the whole history of Israel starting from after the flood and after the Tower of Babel, which is in almost every children's storybook Bible if you want to find out what that story is about. But God calls Abraham out from his people, and then he goes on to tell the story of the patriarchs, which are the grandchildren of Abraham. The patriarchs go into Israel, or they, they be, sorry, they, be, they are the sons of Israel, and they become the nation of Israel. They become tribes which settle in different parts of the land and grow into a massive population. So the patriarchs are like the father figures of the nation of Israel, who, won, who eventually they saw the temple built, and they became this great nation in the Near East there. And so 
this is highly relevant to the Jews here, right? Like the story of Abraham and how it all became. And he speaks about how they went into slavery and then how in slavery in Egypt, God called out Moses and Moses led the people out of Egypt. And then God gave Moses a law to give to the people. And then in the wilderness, they built like a tent where he was worshipped more properly and formally. And then from there, there was kings and we saw King David come out of that. And, and King David was a war king and he wanted to build a house for God, but God said, no, David, I will establish a house for you. And then he gave David a son named Solomon and Solomon built the temple. And so the charges against Stephen are very important because what they say to Stephen is, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, they're talking about the temple, and the law. So, so the Jews right now are defending the the Jewish temple, and the Jewish law. And they're saying this man see, speaks evil of these things and speaks blasphemy of them because we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So that's the charge against Stephen. That Stephen went around repeating Jesus' testimony that Jesus was going to destroy this building, which Jesus never said he was going to destroy it. He said to them, destroy this building and in three days I will raise it up. That's what Jesus actually said. So they're lying straight out. But there's also a key distinction in there because Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up. And what Jesus was saying was, when you kill me, the true temple, I will raise myself up again. Jesus said, my life is my own to lay down and I take it up again. So Jesus, we learned, is the true temple of God. The true meeting place between sinners and God is in the true temple, Jesus Christ. Now, that's not what this is all about, but the Jews clearly misunderstood that, which is why they crucified Christ. And so these are the charges, that he is violating the law that God gave to his people. Now, the law is the most precious and sacred thing to the Jews. It is the very voice of God. It is the very command of God. And if you are seen to be violating God's law, well, then you must be stoned, excommunicated. There are laws against blasphemy against God. And so these people are saying, Stephen must be dealt with. He's preaching these blasphemous things. And it says that they were gazing at him and all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So in the midst of his accusers, he sat there in total confidence, totally ready to answer for the accusations that were against him, which is why... It's so important that we understand where he goes in the scriptures in order to defend what he's saying about Christ. Because after all of this, what we, what we need to realize is that after his whole sermon, this is where he's going. In verse 51 of chapter 7, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear, you resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who's Jesus Christ, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who you, receive, you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. So what he's saying, after all of this, he's demonstrating to the leaders, you're the ones who broke God's law, not me. That's where he's going in this sermon, okay? So in the end, he is saying, I have not violated God's law, but you have. At least in the sense that they are thinking about it. 
Who is the guilty one? Stephen preaches to them. And in the end, he says, you are the guilty ones because why? You rejected Christ. What happens after 51? This is a spoiler, but in verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But in verse 57, it says, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. So that's what happened when Stephen gave this exhortation, when he preached this. And I texted my dad and I said, I'm preaching on Abraham from Acts chapter 7. And he said, I hope you do better than Stephen did. And I said, <laughs> we had security this morning and you all had to empty your pockets, right? But how does Stephen compose that kind of confidence when he's up against the religious system of the, of the Jews and the whole temple? He goes to Abraham. He begins with Abraham. Why does he begin with Abraham? One reason, and I think one reason alone, because God considered Abraham righteous before Abraham ever heard the law. That's my sermon today. Why did Stephen start with Abraham as a defense for his righteousness? Because in the story of Abraham, we see that God made Abraham righteous. He looked at Abraham, and Abraham was not sinless. He was a bit of a coward. Okay, he was sneaky sometimes. He made terrible mistakes. But God considered Abraham righteous. He looked at him and said, I look at you and I see righteousness. And it was not because Abraham obeyed the Ten Commandments. That's why he starts there. Because Abraham is that first one that we know. God looked at him and saw righteousness and it was not because of the law. Because we learned that the law came 430 years after Abraham lived. Abraham lived and died centuries before God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. But God considered Abraham righteous. And if it's true of Abraham, then it's true of Abraham's children. Have you ever heard that song? Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So how do you become a son of Abraham? If it's true of Abraham that he was righteous before, before the law was given, can it be true of us? So our text this morning has sort of three main activities that God engaged Abraham with. Number one, God called Abraham. So the high priest looked at him and, and, and said, are these things so? And he said, in other words, how do you plead, Abraham? I'm sorry, Stephen. How do you plead, Stephen? What's your case? Like, are you guilty or not? Have you violated God's law? Brothers and fathers, hear me. So he has this family connection. Very important in Judaism. Fathers and brothers, because they considered themselves a family of God and sons of Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred into the land that I will show you. So verses 1 through 3, God called Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God to father a nation. In other words, to be the grand, great granddaddy of a large nation. Okay? Remember, this is after the flood. 
So God had already destroyed the earth because of sin. He made a promise to Noah, I will not destroy the earth by water again. Okay, and then after that, we see once again, man drifting into sin and idolatry. And they built a tower and they thought we're going to be better than God. And God said, no, you're not. And he cast them into different languages and he spread them away and he, ca- and he separated them. And after that chapter, God calls Abraham for the first time. So he calls Abraham for the first time right after he judges the world again through Babel. And Abraham is is critical to the story of Israel because we know clearly his ancestors and descendants are well documented in the New Testament. I just want to show you this real quick because this is important to uh, Judaism and it's, it's important to our understanding of who God is and who his people are. In Luke chapter 3, verses 34 and 38, Luke gives us, Luke gives us the, a bit of the genealogy. I'm using the bigger Bible, and so I'm not as familiar with it because I'm saving that one for Genesis. So Luke 34, 30, sorry, 334. He says, he's going through the genealogy of Jesus. He's, and, and in the middle there, he says, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. And then again in verse 38, uh, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so what they're showing is that Abraham is in the lineage from Jesus all the way up to Adam, who is the son of God. And so they show that Abraham is in the middle of this succession right up to God in terms of who the son of God is being Jesus Christ. And so He's obviously one of the fathers of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 has something similar. This is the book, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what Matthew and Luke are showing there to the Jewish people is that when Jesus came along, he belonged to the family lineage of Abraham, who was considered the father of the nation of Israel. So, Israel, you need to accept your king because he belongs to your family. That's what the genealogies say. And Stephen notes the fatherhood of Abraham to those that he's speaking to. Uh, to, to. Which, to say that you were one of the children of Abraham or that he was your father was to say that you belonged to the heritage of Abraham, who they considered to be a, the representation of the people of God. To belong to Abraham was to belong to God. That's how the Jews viewed themselves. If I'm a child of Abraham, if I'm in his line, then I'm safe. I'm good. I'm in the family of God. I'm included. Now, when Jesus came, he sort of turned this notion a little bit on its head. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, who were very purely, from a bloodline perspective, they belonged to the family of Abraham. They were through and through Jews descended from Abraham himself. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 3, 9? He says, do not think to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't try to put that coat on and say, I'm good. Don't hide behind that wall. Don't just say, oh, I'm, I'm one of Abraham's children. Why? For God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, God can make any darn thing he pleases a child of Abraham. It's not your bloodline that makes you a true child of Abraham. The whole Bible is full of this truth. The whole Bible rings this theme that you do not need to be a blood descendant of Abraham to be his true child. 
I don't have time to fully describe that, but we're going to show that in a little bit more detail. Jesus says, God can raise up a child from anything on earth. Anybody can be a child of Abraham. In fact, he uses this picture. He can raise up these stones to be children. So God does not need you as the family. So if, if you would hide behind your family heritage and say, I'm good, I'm good. There's something more that you need to understand. And so Abraham is first called out. God's call on Abraham was central to the identity of God's people. Why? Because Abraham was called to be separate for God. He was called out to be separate for God. Remember, some of you were here last week. We looked at you are a holy nation, a, a, a chosen race. That means a multitude separated and sanctified for God, set apart for his purposes. This was the identity that Abraham had. Why? Because he was called away. Stephen shows us the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Tim, can you throw that map on the screen? I want to show you so you get a bit of a visual. A visual. Do you see that? That's where Abraham lived when he first heard God's command, his vision. And you know where he went? All the way up to Haran. See that up there? I, might, I can't reach all the way. See Haran all the way up there? And then eventually Canaan is all here. This is that well-watered area that, Jesus, that, that God had promised Israel. And you can see that's where they settled. All the tribes of Israel settled in here eventually. But first he went up to Haran, Okay, and, and so he was called to be separate. Look at that journey. He did not have the Uber app at that time. That was like, gather up your donkeys and set out away from your people. And he said to him, to a land that I will show you. Also didn't have Google Maps and Google Street View, right? Like, oh, let me just check it out. Oh, yeah, that looks good. We'll go. He literally set out by faith, knowing I'm going to go where God leads me. So he was set out to be separate for God. Genesis 12, 2. Let's hear that call. Now the Lord said to Abram. By the way, God also changed his name. So his name used to be Abram. And then it was changed to Abraham. So I just don't want you to get confused. That's the same person that I'm talking about. The Lord said to Abram. Before his name was changed. Go from your country and from your kindred. And your father's house. That would be scary, right? If somebody just called you out and said, you need to leave behind everything familiar. But God was separating a people for himself to the land that I will show you. And what's his promise? Verse 2, Genesis 2, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will, and him who dishonors you, I will dishonor. And in you, the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that one specific block of text is so critical for our understanding of the whole Bible because he made this special promise to Abraham living in a foreign land. And then Paul writes thousands of years later, he says in, in Galatians 3.8, and the scriptures, meaning he's talking about Genesis, foreseeing, Seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not just the Jews. That's pretty much everyone here, unless you have Jewish background. That God would also justify the Gentiles by faith. Listen to this. Preached the gospel beforehand 
to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So what Paul is telling us is that that was the preaching of the gospel to Abraham, to Abram. So when we look back at that blessing, I will make you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He wasn't just saying to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and just you awesome Jews, you will be my people for the rest of time. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation, but in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why is that? Because we know Christ came through the line all the way to Abraham. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 shows us that Abraham is in the line of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth are blessed, aren't they? Because the gospel has been made known to every language. That's what Pentecost is all about. It's the works of God being proclaimed in every language. Tongues of fire rested on them, and they all heard the mighty works of God in their own language. This is the gospel that was preached to Abraham. That in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God is preparing his people And he's preparing history to fully understand who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is not plan B for God. Jesus Christ was always in the eye of the Lord to save humanity. And he preached that to Abraham. Although not in explicit language using, you know, his name will be Jesus. But he was saying, this is the one that I'm going to save the whole earth through. So God first calls Abraham. That's how salvation begins for all of us. God calls us. Some of us, it can be confusing because when you look into your life and you think, well, I started getting hungry for the truth and I started looking and I started going to church. And some of us think that we went and we found God because we wanted him. The Bible tells us that even your searching for God is God calling you. That is one of the most tremendously comforting things you, you could ever hear. It doesn't mean that you don't have good intentions. But what it's saying is that when you come to salvation in God, it's not because you looked so hard and you went to find him. It's because God said, I'm calling you to be separate from me. And so Abraham is this model for us of how God calls people and how he separates them and what he expects of them. And so Abraham, we learn, he set out, he left. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And so, oh, so that top place where he was, if you just throw it up one more time, Tim. So his father died, I guess, up in Haran. And then God brought him down into here. And then we learn that there's a famine and then they head into Egypt over here. That's how they got into Egypt because we're going to learn that in the next couple weeks. But so... um, Abraham just goes all over the place. He's super well-traveled. That's how he ends up in Egypt. And so after his father died, he moved them into this land in which you now live, he's saying to the Jewish rulers. In other words, the reason you're here is because Abraham followed God and believed in him. And so God first calls Abraham. What else does God do? Verses 4 and 5, God justifies Abraham. Now, I'm going to explain that word because it can be a bit of religious jargon to say he justified him. What exactly does that mean? I'll explain it, but it's, it's a good word for us to learn and use because it's, it's so loaded with truth. And so here's what happens. Verse 4, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, so he be- obeyed him. And after his father died, God removed him from there and into this land 
in which you are now living, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. That's incredible. And so he, te- he says to Abraham, you know, go leave your people. Go leave your people. Leave behind everything. I'm going to show you a land. I'm going to give it to you. And when Abraham gets there, he receives no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, it's, we learn from Stephen. He had nothing. He was literally a visitor in that land. And God said, I'm going to give this land to your children. He had no children at that time. And the fact that you're going to own it has to be compared with the reality that he doesn't even own one part. If you're a real estate developer, you don't go from nothing to a whole town at once. You usually buy, you know, a a corner lot here and you develop that and then you build and you go. And so you're thinking Abraham on his first visit, it's like, well, maybe I'll just get a little bit. Like maybe God will just start me off with something small. And Stephen tells us he inherited nothing on that first trip. He inherited nothing. So in order to be a nation, one sort of must have descendants, right? If you're going to be the father of a nation, the first thing you think of is, well, I better start having some people around me, right? You want to be a nation, you need more people. And you also need land. There's not really, especially in the patriarchal time here, there's not such thing as a nation without land. It's not a nation without land. So you need both. And Abraham saw neither. And so what happens? He, he sort of, he's sort of like, he's empty-handed. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners. And so he explains to them, it's not all going to happen exactly in the way that you think. But I want to show you something because Abraham starts to question. He believes God, and he's, but he starts to question the plan. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 15. I'm just taking you through a little bit of the life of Abraham from his perspective. In, in Genesis 15, 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came, came to Abram in a voice, in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a, member, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, I don't even have a child to give my few possessions to. How am I going to be a great nation? How is your promise going to come about? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. He was in a tent. And he said, Abram, come outside for a minute. And he said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it counted and he counted it to him as righteousness. So he led him outside. Like Abraham's kind of in his tent, a little bit complaining. I don't have a child. How's this nation going to come for me? How are all these great things going to happen? He's already been separated by God. He's been called out from his people. But how is the rest of the promise going to be? How is he going to be delivered to this great nation? God says, come outside. I'm going to show you. If you can count the stars. Wynne tried to count them a few weeks ago and she got to six. Thought that was a lot. And he said, if you're able to number those stars, 
that will be the number of your offspring. Like you're not just going to have one child. You are going to be the father of a multitude, which is why we sing, I am one of them and so are you. His offspring are still being enumerated today. They are so many. They are like the stars in the sky. And what does it say? He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, God saw Abram as worthy, as accepted, as having a good standing with God, as in guiltless before God. He held Abram guiltless because he just believed the promise. There was no law. Law didn't come for another 430 years. He didn't say, okay, Abram, here's your promise. Here's all your descendants. And by the way, here's the Ten Commandments. If you show me like a good two-week trial period of believing and also fulfilling the Ten Commandments, then we can strike a bit of a righteousness deal. Then I'll, I'll call you righteous. That didn't even, it didn't even cross into the equation. He said, you are righteous. Now, this is not just wishful thinking of the author of Genesis. In, in the book of Romans, Paul also writes extensively about Abram. This is why Abram is so critical to our faith. Paul writes extensively about it. In, and we're gonna, by the way, we're going to meet Paul in, in a few weeks. We're going to meet him the character in the book of Acts. But he ended up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. And in Romans chapter 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abram, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if, Abram, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now those who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him, who, is justifi who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in other words, what he's saying is that if, if we earn our righteousness from God by doing, then God owes us something. If, if we are made righteous before God because we did good things, then we are saying to God, you owe me now. Like wages, like when you show up for an eight-hour shift, you owe me my wages because I did work for you, God. You owe me my gifts. God is not in debt to anybody, which is why he gives your righteousness as a gift because God owes nobody anything. So you cannot work for your salvation. You cannot work for your righteousness. You cannot work to cleanse your conscience from your sin. You cannot do it. God will not cleanse your conscience by the good things that you do for him. You have to believe. You have to believe. And so he justifies Abram. Justifies means that he reckons his record of sin as gone. The New Testament teaches us that on the cross, our certificate of debt was canceled out by God. Canceled out. Your debt certificate was crushed and burned at the cross. That's what justified means. It means that your record of debt no longer counts against you. Abram had his record of debt canceled by God because he believed in the promise. And so God's people, regardless of what you know about them or what about their history... Some people really, really confuse the Old Testament and they say that's when God used to justify people with the law. 
That's when God used to make people righteous by the law. He gave them a law and then he made them follow all these laws and these sacrifices and they had to wear certain kinds of clothing and they had to grow their beards and they had to do all these special things. And in the Old Testament, that's how God made people righteous. That's wrong. God never made anybody righteous by the law that he gave. He made people righteous when they believed in his promise. That's everybody from, the, from Adam right up until you today. There is no law that you can follow to make yourself righteous before God because God gives righteousness as a gift. So God's people were always established by this one fact that the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will not live by a code. The righteous will not live by perfection according to a standard of commands. The righteous will live by faith. Meaning that we will be like Abraham. When God promises, we obey and we, and we have faith. Now here's the amazing thing, and, and the Bible deals with this extensively, that faith without a responsive life change and action and works, that faith is dead. Because you can't say of Abram, God counted it to him as righteous when he was back in Ur of the Chaldeans. He had to leave. There had to be some response in his faith. There had to be some life transforming action according to his faith in order for this to all take place. And that's why the geography is so important because the promise to Abram did not come back when he was in Ur. It came when he was up in Haran and down in Canaan. And so there's a, there's a physical transformation that's taking place in Abram's life but God did not count his righteousness because of the fact that he left Ur. That did not make him righteous. What made him righteous was that he believed. But faith without works is dead. Now that's also not the message this morning, but I just want to clarify that a faith that has no obedience to God is no faith at all. I just want to make that clear. But this morning, what Stephen is leading our minds to is where does righteousness come from? Who is justified before God? Who can have a clean conscience before God? What does God expect of me and how do I know? This is why he begins with Abram. Now, Abram had every reason to doubt God because he owned exactly no land. And it says that he was 100 years old when he received the promise, so much so that he, or does it, Sarah laughed or he laughed. It was just like, this is crazy. Because Sarah was barren. She was physically unable to have children, his wife. And she looked at him, and there's this passage where it says that she basically looked at her husband and said, he's as good as dead. Like, we all know what it takes to have a baby, right? So, like, that's not really maybe happening a whole lot when you're 100 years old. So he's, she's looking at the husband like, how's this child going to come about? Romans 4 also teaches us that Abraham considered his body and it didn't diminish his faith. It didn't wreck his faith. He was like, God is able to do this. And we later see in Abraham's life, when God finally did give the child, he also asked Abraham to go sacrifice the child to him. And do you know what Abraham's faith said? This is the child that the whole promise is going to happen in. So if I have to sacrifice him to God, then God will just raise him up again. Because this is the child. And if God tells me to sacrifice him, then I'll do it because God is able to raise the dead. That's what he was thinking. Abraham's faith was not shaken by the circumstances. But here's the deal. God's redemption does not depend on 
favorable circumstances. He saves out of the hardest, most impossible, most bleak circumstances every time. Some of us think, well, I wasn't that bad when I got saved. You know, I was in college and I was a studious person and I treated people pretty well, you know, and I didn't cheat. That's just a mask for how wicked you really were on, your, on the inside. Some of you got saved out of really terrible circumstances where you were as sinful as you could have been. Sexually, with substances, with relationships, with finances. You were as bad as you could have been and you know that God saved you out of an impossibly black situation. Now, we were all saved out of that same black situation. Just some of us are better aware of it than others. But bleak circumstances do not hinder God's redemption and God's ability to justify and to make righteous those who obey and believe him. So God calls Abraham. God justifies Abraham, means he makes him righteous. Now I love this. He established Abraham, verses 6 and 8. So God presents a plan in which Abraham's own descendants would come to own and sovereignly rule their own nation. Not just that you'll be a big family, but you'll be a big nation, which means that kings are going to come from your line. We know that through genealogy, right? We know that kings came from Abraham. In other words, I'm not only going to multiply you, I'm going to establish you. I am going to give you security provision. That's what it meant to be a sovereign nation. You were in charge of your own resources. You were in charge of your own protection. Okay, you were sovereign. You could protect your people. You could provide for them. It was a signal of God's favor that you would be a sovereign nation. Nations that were scattered were, 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 were vulnerable. They had no borders. They had no standing army. They had no provision. So to be in the Old Testament, to have a picture of security from God was to be a sovereign nation. Remember, at that time, Abraham, it was just him and his wife. He's like, we're going to be a sovereign nation one day. So God establishes him. But he, he lays out this plan. He says, first, your family is going to be impressed and, and, and enslaved. And that salvation, the salvation from that oppression, this is, remember, this is, to make clear, this is Israel when they go into Egypt and they are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They almost completely forget who God is during this time. And when God calls up Moses to save them, this becomes the hallmark of God and his relationship with his people. After he saves them out of Egypt, the whole rest of the Bible, God is always reminding Israel, remember when I saved you out of Egypt? Remember when I brought you out of Egypt? Remember when I saved you from slavery? And that becomes for us the model of what it means to become a Christian. God saves us from our slavery to sin, our helpless ignorance against God, no righteousness, no hope, totally enslaved to sin. So it becomes a hallmark in the Old Testament and it becomes a model in the New Testament to understand what God has done for us, that he saved us from slavery. Now, there are more interesting historic reasons why he waits 400 years. You'll have to ask me about that later. But he waits for a specific time for a specific reason and then he saves them, which becomes, as I said, the key identity marker of the people of God and after suffering and after slavery, God would bring them into Canaan, which was the promised land. What does Stephen say about that? God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge that nation. And listen to this. After that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. 
he establishes Abraham. He establishes him. He says, after I save you, you will come to this place. I don't care. So if you read the story of the Exodus after they leave Egypt, it doesn't matter who's living in Canaan. In fact, they look really scary. When, the, when, the, when Israel comes and looks at Canaan, the land that God promised them, they're like, no way. They're huge. We're going to die if we go in there. And you know what God says to them? Then you don't get to come. God doesn't care who's at Canaan when he frees Israel. He's like, this is where you're going to worship me because I promise you this land. And so God drove those people out in favor of Israel because he promised that he would and he establishes them. He gives them security and sovereignty and protection and favor in that land. Now, the sad reality is that doesn't make Israel faithful. That's the worst part is that God does all of this for them and they are not faithful to him. They have kings who are evil. They do wicked things. They practice idolatry. They break the law. It's so sad, the history of Israel. But God is the one who does it. He says, I will establish you. Now, this is what's cool about that. In all of his dealings with everybody, in all the complicated ways that God's, God works, and sometimes how his promises are deferred, listen to this. The end result of all of God's dealings is that there would be a right relationship between him and his people. That's the purpose of everything that God does. Do you hear that? He says, I will bring you out and you will worship me here. That's the point of everything that God does. It's to have a right relationship with his people. It's in the end, it's to make you worship God. That's his goal with you. Just if you're hearing this this morning, that's God's goal with you, that you would worship him as he establishes you even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of not seeing how the promises all work out, even in the midst of not seeing the full glorification that we are promised in Jesus, he is establishing you to praise him, to worship him in all that you do. Now, he promised him this little promised land, this little strip of land that we saw along the sea there that's really hotly debated today. And you know what? I don't really think that's the point because the Bible tells us that's not the point. He promised that land to Abraham, yes. And Abraham went and got that land, yes. But you know what Romans chapter 4 tells us? That God didn't just promise that little strip of land. He said that to Abram. But what God was really intending was to give Abraham the whole world. Romans chapter 4 tells us that he promised Abraham the whole earth. In other words, if you are a child of Abraham, your inheritance is the whole earth. It's the whole earth. Jesus said it in the most plain language you could ever imagine. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We, as children of Abraham, by faith in Jesus Christ, are set to inherit the new heavens and the new earth and to rule and reign with Jesus Christ forever. Total sovereignty, total security, total provision, total protection, all through faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning that we have nothing to be afraid of. I'm wrapping up, but I just want to read to you Romans Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 30, because this is how directly... Abraham relates to us as a people. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the law bears witness to God's righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction 
For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Did you hear that? There's no distinction. We're all equally messed up. Abraham, me, you, David. There's no distinction. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, that he might be the just, I'm sorry, and the justifier, meaning that God is just because he punishes sin in Christ and he also is the justifier because he forgives you. God is just and the justifier at the very same time. That's how great God is. So what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? The law of works? No, but the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's what Abraham shows us, right? We're justified not because of the works of the law. We're justified by faith. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Or is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do we then overthrow the law of this by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what does all of this mean? We're shown that God gives a covenant to Abraham. He circumcises his children. And some think, oh, that's how you're righteous before God. You have to circumcise your children. Oh, you have to do this to be righteous. No, he says, God is the God of the circumcised and of the uncircumcised in the same way. They both, mu they both must just have faith in God. So what does God expect of us? And I actually am closing with this verse. What does God expect of you? 1 John 3.19 by this we know that we are of the truth and we reassure our heart before him. Remember when I said, does your heart ever give you crushing anxiety about your position before God? We know that we are of the truth and we reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Oh, whoa, didn't you just say that we please him by having faith? Didn't it just say we, we please him by keeping his commandments? Yes. Verse 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. So what, is the, what does God expect of you? What does God expect of you in order to be righteous? That you would receive his son, Jesus Christ. And you would rely on nothing else to be righteous before God. If your conscience condemns you in your sin and your failure, you turn to Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You would believe in him and you are justified exactly the same as Abraham. Your faith is just as great as Abraham's. Your righteousness is just as great as Father Abraham if you just believe in Jesus Christ and accept and receive him. So there lies our confidence. There lies knowing that we have fully fulfilled God's expectation of us if we have received his son.